Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation and comfort. Be blessed. Um, one of the things that, one of the, one of my heart's desires as we went into the book of John was to catch the fire that the apostle John had, that apostle that Jesus loved, like he described himself. And so we spoke, we've spoken about the historical context of, um, those days and times and in all the different scriptures that we've gone is something that will keep coming up. Because as we know, when we read scripture, we have to always read scripture in context. Now, even saying, let's read scripture in context, that phrase itself, we have still suffered from it because people have still abused it. But I read something um, recently and it helped to really just pictorially, because I think in pictures, just help to represent just how, when you're reading your Bible, how you know. One of the ways you know that you're reading in context. So the person was saying that, if somebody wrote you a letter, like a full letter. I mean, if you wrote letters in secondary school, let me know your age. I don't mean text message, like actual letter on paper, um, with paper and biro. Not that you wrote a letter in an email. That's not what I'm talking about. No, no, not English exam. To somebody now. You wouldn't write letter to people. Uh-uh, even in primary school. Ditto. In primary school. Uh-uh. Wow. Such a lost art, right? So imagine you wrote a letter to your best friend, right? Um, let's say you are writing a letter. Um, Shaya is in Syria. Sam is in Singapore, in the villages where there's no this thing. Don't look at me. I'm a prophet. You don't know what might happen in the next years to come. So leave it like that. Syria and Singapore, just take it like that. And they want to communicate to one another. And they are telling each other about what they are going through. And then... 1,000 years from now, somebody gets a hold of that letter. And then the person wants to talk about the content and the things they've learned from the letter. But the person just picks the second line in the fourth paragraph and just highlights that, takes it, and starts talking about it. And that's all you know. So sometimes when we go into scripture and we take like that, like pick and drop, just in the middle of a thought, just like that, and you take it and you start talking about it, that is already taking scriptures out of context. So when we say taking scriptures in its context, those are part of things we need to do. We need to know who was writing the letter. Why were they writing the letter? To whom did they write the letter? He did not write the letter to Ephraim, so it wasn't a love letter. He was writing it to a comrade in chains. There was something he was writing about. And if you've written letter, okay, even if you didn't write letter in um, secondary school, how many of you, how many of you passed at least got C5 and above in English by egg? Okay, good. There was letter writing, a part of the question. I people don't used to do letter, I used to do com- comp- composition, be summary, summary, I hated summary so much. There were a list of things, but I think there were some that they would write, they would give you a context and tell you to write letter, right? So and you know that um, in English, when they are doing the um, parts of a letter, they will tell you there's the introduction, there's the address, there's the introduction, there's the body, heading and all of that. So those are part of things that you need to understand when you are reading letters that one person is writing from one person to the other. So when we say reading in context, those are all the things that need to come into play so that you don't just um, 
go in the middle of the letter and pick and just let's say share wrote one place, you are mine. Next thing you begin to deconstruct and say that means there was a relationship between Cheye and this thing because in the letter, on the fourth paragraph, he said, you are mine. Whereas you did not read where he said, and I saw two people and as they were talking to each other, one said to the other, you are mine. You understand? So that's what it feels like when you just take something out of context and begin to use it to cook, right? So as we went into the book of John, those are some of the things we we're looking at. Who was John? When, when was this book written? Um, and as we went through his testimony and what he said about Jesus, and one of the reasons why I love the book of John so much is how he reveals Jesus. How we, you would see, if you have all those Bibles that have um, the words of Jesus in red, you see a lot that John will state something that Jesus said, and then you will see the remaining part of the story. As he tells some of the story, you see some is a commentary. And the last one we, um, we looked through, we spoke, when we're still in John, we spoke about um, the story of Nicodemus, I believe, and John's um, commentary on it, if I may put it that way. So now we are going into John chapter 4. It's going to be a long read. Um, and I'm going to be reading from NIV. All of us, I, what I would have even liked is if I can share it, but it might be a little distracting. So, um, Bible reading. Can I have my, I'm going to share it. So, one person will read from verse 1 to Fifteen. Another person will read from sixteen to twenty-six, and then the last person will read from no one to fifteen, sixteen to twenty-six, twenty-seven to thirty-eight, and then thirty-nine to forty-two. We are stopping at um, verse forty-two today. So I need four volunteers before I pick you in my sovereign wisdom. Volunteer yourself now. Tossing one. Moses to Mose, <laughs> he will read. Just don't let me know your name in this church. Chike three. Who is the last person? Victory. There's Victoria and there's Victory. So Victory will read the last one. Oh, did you have a suggestion? I'm good. So are you guys set? Did you get? So according to. So one to fifteen, sixteen to um, twenty six. 27 to 38, and then 39 to 42. If you do not have the NIV translation, you could read from the screen so that we could all just follow. Um, and it doesn't look like we are switching from Dao Art to contemporary English. John, John 4, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We've done chapter 3. So who is first? Tosin is first. Moses is second, Chike is third, and then victory is last. Okay. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had, he had to go to Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Seeker, near the plot of ground Jacob, the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, 
Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Go ahead. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The, Messiah, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I've, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the, the one who reaps, the one who, who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. 
Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many believed. Many more became believers. They say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After the two days... He no, left. so that's where we are ending. Yeah, verse 42. Okay. All right, so let's get into it. I hope you guys are able to follow. Okay. So before we jump into the scripture, let's... There's some... Um, some context that I just want to lay down and then we'll jump into it. Just three things. The first one is assignments for you people. Because that's, this is Bible study. So that you sit down and you just come and swallow everything. People need to do some study. You get it? So, question. Although the questions I do usually ask you, people don't use to answer it. And there's judgment. But it's okay. So, first question. Right. Um, this is the first question I actually want to just go and really check. When in verse one, when he says, "Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John." That's John the Baptist. Right. Although it was Jesus, it wasn't Jesus who baptized? It was his disciples? Right. He left Judea. Why do you think the Pharisees had an issue with him baptizing more than John? Or let me put it this way. The Pharisees have a problem with the baptism of John, but not the baptism of Jesus. You get my question? The same question. What do you think the issue of the Pharisees was with Jesus baptizing more than John? Just write the question and go and research it. And it will tie to some of the things I already said in the, because we had already, we've even, one of the sessions, one of the Bible study sessions, we spoke about the Pharisees, the zeal of the Pharisees, right? So why do you think that it was somewhat of an issue to them that Jesus was gaining more disciples than John? Don't worry, it's not any, it's not any mysterious answer, but just something worth thinking about, okay? So now let's go into some things and then we'll go back into the scriptures. So here we see um, the woman at the well, very popular story. Like if you are a veteran Christian, if you've been, been a Christian long enough, you would have heard about this story um, a number of times, different things. But one of the first things I want to, one of the first backdrops I want to paint for us is the schism between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? And when you understand this thing, by the time you go into the scripture and read some scriptures, some, some of these things, it will begin to, the color will look more vivid to you. So brief history about um, Israel. We know that at some point they divided into Northern and Southern. So that's Israel and Judah, right? And then um, at some point, um, Israel established his capital at Shechem and later at the hilltop of Samaria. And then Assyria conquered Israel, and that's where Kasala. What's the past tense of boast? Uh -huh. Best, exactly. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> right, after Assyria conquered Israel, then the foreigners brought with them different pagan gods. Let's read, let's go to 2 Kings, verse 17. It's a long read, so I'll just go through it so that I can paint the picture of what exactly happened. And you understand why this in particular is important. Um... Second Kings. To be sure I'm reading from NIV, right? Wow. Okay. Ah, I used to love reading all these Kings Chronicles. It was always very dramatic. So the king of Syria, Assyria, brought men from Babylon and from Kutha. And from I'm reading from verse 24. Okay. And from Hamath and Sepavim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the customs of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they killed them, because they do not know the customs of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Yes, capital letter. But every nation still made gods of its own, and put them in the house houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkot Benoth, the men of Kut made Negal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nebaz and Tatak. And the Seprovites burned their children in the fire of Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepavim. They also feared the Lord. And appointed from among themselves priests of the high, high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, who he named, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him shall you fear, and to him, shall, shall, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances of the law and the commandments which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. Right, The covenant I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier customs. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served other gods. Their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they did to this day. The funny thing was, as all of this, as that separation happened, and some other things happened after that, right? Um... Even as we had the north, Israel, the south, Judah, Judah fell to Babylon, right? And then after some time, um, some remnants re returned to build back Jerusalem. By then, the Samaritans, right, they weren't happy about it. They vigorously opposed it. 
and tried to um, undermine the attempt to reestablish the nation. But the full-blooded, this is how the commentary put it, the full-blooded monotheistic Jews who had not yet mixed, right? Um, they detested the mixed marriages and the worship of their northern cousins. So their, the funny thing was roots, what would I call it, the roots tribe or the roots nation that eventually morphed and morphed to what it was in that day and time was Israel. And somehow they still retained some of the practices. Let me show you. Um, so there was a place I saw some of the different things. They are, that's the funny thing on, so let me just read it and you get what I mean. So Samaritan Israelites, right? Um, of course, they are the remnants of the Northern Kingdom. Jewish Israelites are the followers of the Southern Kingdom. Um, in fact, the Samaritan Israelites only lived in that land around that same um, place, around Samaria and all of that. We had Jewish Israelites that were scattered and then came back. They believe that, the Samaritan Israelites believe that Mount Gerizim is the center of worship, right? The Jewish Israelites believe that Jerusalem is the center of worship. And in that same Second Kings, I think it was around 12, you'd see that that was when the change to where they worship started, began to happen. Such that in their, um, their own holy book is really the Torah. And one of the things that is different, there are, difference, there are differences between the Torah of the Samaritan Israelites and the Jewish Israelites. Um, I think I saw over 6,000 variations, although a chunk of it might be is punctuation, not might be a chunk of it is punctuation, but there are some key differences. One of the key differences is that Samaritans maintain that where they are supposed to worship is Mount Gerizim, right? Um, that's the center of their worship. So hold on all of all these things. By the time we go back into the scripture, you know why I'm saying this. For the Jewish Israelites, they maintain that Jerusalem is the center of their worship. And so the Samaritan Israelites pray facing Mount Gerizim, right? Jewish Israelites pray facing Jerusalem. Um, for them, Torah is the holy scripture. Uh, and the Jewish people have their own Torah. Um, and so on and so on, right? So they just maintained the five, um, the Pentateuch, and then, like I said, there were some vari variations around punctuation and all of that. In fact, they claim that theirs is the most aligned version, right? Um, that's the Sam Samaritan Israelites um, as against the Jewish Israelites. So these are some of the differences. Now let's go into the Gospels for you to see how deep that division and how deep the, for lack of a better word, beef was, right? So you, you've gotten the historical parts to where they go to where they are. So the Jewish Israelites believed that they were untainted, they, were, they remained, um, what's it called, pure, right? Even though they went on exile and they came back, Samaritans believed that, no, what they were doing was the right thing. Although we see here that they mixed with other gods. And you begin to see the contrast in the way some scriptures, like in... in um, in the Gospels, what they say about Samaritans, you see, you just have an idea of how the Jews really view them. Let's go to Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Luke chapter 9, verse 52. Okay, so, and he sent messengers ahead of him, this Jesus, and they went and entered the village, and the Samaritans 
and they, and they entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him. That's the village of the Samaritans because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's one. Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 5. So this was the Samaritans rejecting um, the disciples and Jesus because, because they knew they were heading towards Jerusalem. They already probably reasoned that they were um, Jews. And that also tells you, some, some commentators will tell you that on surface, you might not even be able to tell the difference. So the difference, because languages were similar, although they say some of the Jews, because Samaritans already mixed, they didn't look, but on surface level, they might still have looked alike. But what they used to distinguish them was the fact that they were heading towards Jerusalem. So they knew that these ones were people who believed that you worship at Jerusalem, so they are the Jews. Right? So once they knew that that was a distinction, the Samaritans didn't listen to them or receive them. Um, Matthew 10, verse 5, right? These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Next. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And we know that it's not because Jesus was um, discriminating in your 2024 sensitive words. But there was a certain um, order in which he was going to do what he was going to do. And we'll see it again as we're going to look for. And lastly, John 8, verse 48. John 8, verse 48. Um, so before this, I don't want to read the... What is this? If you had gone up before this, please go up. There was a discussion, yes, there was a discussion between the Jews and Jesus. Please go back to 48. I, I just wanted to remember. There was a discussion where Jesus was talking about Abraham and all of that. Because, of course, the Samaritans believe that Abraham is also their father. And so they, the Jews wanted to discredit Jesus and see what they said. They said, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? How can they put those two words in the, the same two words in the same sentence? What are they trying to say? Like, really, what are they trying to say? But they knew that if they could accuse him like that, it would almost immediately discredit him where he was doing his ministry. And the reason why they brought that angle was because what they were arguing about just before this particular scripture was about Abraham, where Jesus was talking of um, Abraham, your father, and all of that. So these are just three examples. These are three pointers for you to just see that distinction, to see how the Jews and the Samaritans viewed each other and they treated um, each other. Second um, context I want to lay before we now go into some of the lessons of this scripture was Jesus talking to a woman. So there are many, 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 and we are doing Seekers Conference, so we're still preparing for Seekers Conference. And am I taking that part this time around? Give it to Sammy. I'm not doing it. Questions on, um, on what they used to say? I used to ask the question about gender, this thing, gender. There's a word now. When you are biased, when you are biased against someone, like misogyny, thank you. Misogyny in the Bible, yeah. <laughs> Right? And there are a lot of people who, are, who, when they argue and when they're trying to paint the picture of how um, Jesus viewed women and how Jesus 
um, was very egalitarian, although their description, their definition of the word egalitarian, you need to be really careful about it. So they used different scriptures. And of course, this Samaritan woman conversation was one of the scriptures. And the reason why is you would see first and foremost how she described herself and how the disciples described just reading the just reading through the scripture, you see her own um, reaction, right? Where the woman said, um, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan, but she didn't stop it there. She said, I am a Samaritan woman. How can you be asking me for a drink? And then later on, at the, I think that was when the disciples came, they were shocked to see him talking with a woman, although they didn't say anything after that. John just recorded that they were surprised. Anyway, so I can go on and on into the different explanations to try and prove to you that, of course, of course, <laughs> the Bible is not misogynistic, right? Like, that's very clear. Um, if you're not bringing your biases into scripture, and not allowing other people to um, color your view of it. But that's, I'm not, so I'm not going to try and start focusing and digging deep into all of all that so that we can finish in time. But I just want to tell you some of the learnings that came out about Jesus talking to a woman in a strange way, this thing gave me a certain comfort. Some of the arguments that always um, come out, and I, I, I have argued like this before, when you're trying to defend, looks like you're trying to defend the scripture to make it look like, oh, Jesus had 12 disciples. It was not, there was no, it wasn't, what's it called? There was no equality there now. It wasn't six men and six women. It was 12 male disciples, fully male disciples. You understand? And sometimes I've tried, I've, I, no, let me not say sometimes, I have actually tried to argue and say, um, eh, well, it was the cultural context of this day and time. It will make sense. Um, they're like, and there were a lot of funny things. If you just try and dig deep into not just the Jew, how the Jewish viewed women, and as you can imagine how the Samaritans viewed women, but how the prevailing cultures of those days viewed women, like, you don't even want to go there. So it might look like an easy cop-out. But this scripture gave me a certain um, comfort in the fact that if Jesus wanted to do it, he would have done it. He had absolutely no reason to be talking to a Samaritan woman, but he chose to do it. Follow me. This means that if Jesus wanted female disciples, he could have, but he chose not to. And if the king of kings and lords of lords chose to do the things the way he did it, I am 100% okay with it. So that gave me just that strange comfort. Jesus is not a, how do I put it? He is not a product of the times and cultures. He wasn't trying to conform to say, the reason why I did what I did was so that I could be accepted. So as I read this now, I was like, this is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. First of all, you know, I've, I've tried to paint the picture of Samaritans and even how the Jews see Samaritans. So first and foremost, he decided to sit down. And since we've re been reading John, this is the longest evangelistic conversation he's had. And the funny thing is that if you just go above and see the way he spoke to Nicodemus and the way he spoke to this woman, very different. He sat down, took his time and started talking to her. Not going to talk to her in the bush or where people, in 12 noon, at the well, where everybody could see. So if Jesus wanted to do what he, what he was going to do, he would have done it. Jesus is not the product of the times. And so if you are offended that the king of kings and lords of lords 
chose to do what he did the way to do what he did the way he did it. Ah. Then let's really know who your Lord is. Whether it is the what would I call it now prevailing cultures and and agendas that you want to really bow to or God. We know that God does not view any one person more than the other, but he chose to do the things the way he did it. I'm very okay with it. I'm a hundred percent okay with it. So yes, I repent for using um, cultural distance, especially when it comes to Jesus. We don't joke with Jesus in this place. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Right? So some other context and things that people have said about this woman, she had um, four husbands and the one she was with wasn't even her, her husband. There are arguments that um, it could have been one due to divorce or it could have actually been due to death. And you know the way the law was where if one dies, like the husband dies, you're passed on to the next person and things like that. So I don't know, right? So it could have been that maybe she was truly adulterous and she was just going from, or either way, she had four husbands. But the one I know is that she had the one she was with at that moment, and she was with that one, was not her husband. Mm-hmm. So, right, and so we'll begin to learn things um, <clears throat> about all of all this. So now let's go into scriptures. I'm not going to take it one by one, but I want to travel um, along that line. So now that we have that picture at the back of our mind. So again, by the time you contrast this to the conversation with Nicodemus, just the chapter before, you see that it was very different, but Jesus was very consistent with his messaging. And so he starts by asking the woman, will you give me a drink? And the first thing the woman begins to talk about is her situation. Simple question. Will you give me a drink? And of course, she goes to her situation because that's where her eye is at. Right? Do you understand? That's where, what she's thinking. And she's already like, yeah, I drew. I'm a Samaritan. Hello? Do you understand? <laughs> why are you asking me for a drink? And then John now explained to us why the woman asked that, because the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. And then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the person where they ask you this kind of thing, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Guess what? She still didn't get it. Like she was clueless. One continued arguing in her cluelessness. And one said, well, you have nothing to draw the water with. The well is deep. Uncle, what's your plan, basically? <laughs> right? And then she now begins to go back, immediately enters into argument, because that's part of the argument of um, Jacob, our father, Jacob, your father. Is he your father? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself and everything? Jesus went again. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never test. Indeed, what I give them will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman now begins to get it a little bit. But she still approaches it with her, what's the word? Greed. Because she's not actually getting it. Because the next statement she's making is, oh yeah, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And guess what? Why? So I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. That's her answer. Like, <laughs> someone is telling you, I will give you water that will well, 
wellspring of everlasting life. You will never thirst again. And you're already putting two and two together that if I can just escape carrying, uh, what would I call it now? Bella from um, this thing. And then there are many other conversations around how, for example, um, they say the fact that the woman came at 12 noon probably means that she didn't want to come because the normal custom then is women come earlier, they always go together to fetch. We can see that I do not draw that parallel, but those are part of the different suggestions and all of that. And so the woman is thinking that I don't want to be coming here. Give me this, your everlasting water. Right? So that's three times. So Jesus decides to confront her sin so that her eyes may be open. And we're going to learn a lot about this, about on how we do evangelism. Go and call your husband. You can see the first three things Jesus told her. Let me give you water. Do you know who I am? I will satisfy you. She was still talking, sebrede, sebrede. She was calculating. Oh yeah, let's confront your sin. Go and call your husband. She was honest. I have no husband, but oh, let me know. Let me say what she said was truthful, but was she truly honest? Because she just said, I have no husband, which is truthful. And then Jesus told her that, to let you know that I'm not playing. Of course, <laughs> you have no husband. <laughs> the fact <laughs> is that you have had five, and the one you are now with is not your husband. Quick segue, because I'm still going to reiterate this. One of the things that um, I usually have late night lamentations when the things of the world, I see, oh, I'm doing another segue of the segue. When God subjected the creation in hope, it is so that as every man goes through life, you have repeated chances of this patient God for your eyes to be open. There's nobody that is not going to go through water, water. In case you think that it is pleasure that is going to hide you from um, seeing God. And you also get your chance at pleasure. Whatever it is, you will go through life. So anyway, one of those days when this word has shown me water, water, that's why I started lamenting that. Ah, truly, truly, the real problem of man, the real problem of this earth, that's always been a problem, and it is still a problem to this day, is the problem of sin. But it's funny how in our day and time we have, I don't know what to call it, I don't know whether to call it Christianity or whatever, that tells you to approach people and have conversations with people about Christ, and you're telling them everything Christ can give you affirming their, what's it called? Uh, affirming and making them feel good. Don't talk about hellfire. You know, just talk about the love of God, right? How God is going to make you happy. How God is... Jesus went straight to the sin and told her, because that is our problem. Sin is a big deal. And it's going to continue closing <laughs> and clouding people's eyes. So let, me, so let me give you, I'm serious, let me give you people this encouragement. When you are evangelizing with people, don't be afraid to confront the matter. And the reason why you shouldn't be afraid is number one, you are not the one that died for them. So as long as you know that there is no pride in you, when you tell them that you are sinful, you're not telling them they are sinful because you yourself are without sin. And you are one, no, so you're not on any pedestal. You are telling them you are sinful that, Come, let me tell you what has happened to me. I have found someone who has told me everything that happened to me. That's, that is your testimony. But don't be afraid to confront sin. That this thing you are doing is sinful. This is a sinful world. We are sinful and we need a savior. Don't go and sell Jesus to them that is a sure bet. 100%. Like, I, I kid you not, I used to have that problem when I was evangelizing because in my mind, I used to think that 
In fact, what I used to do when I was evangelist, how I used to do it then was I'll meet people, I'll say, hi, my name is this, 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 this. Do you have any issues I can pray with you about? Because Jesus, and I, because in my mind, I'm like, it's the good news. So it should make people feel good. No. The news is I've, I've come to give you what will save you. So Jesus went ahead and said, you are right when you say you have no husband. You have five, and the one you now have is not your husband. Next thing, you are not a Sunday school teacher. You are a prophet. <laughs> I can see you are a prophet. He has been telling her something since morning. She did not hear. Next thing, she just goes, I can see you are a prophet. But guess what? She still goes back. Human beings were like, stop on go to. She went back to issue and she now went to our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. <sighs> and then she goes, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus is not joking with her. Woman. Believe me. All these things that you are calling issues. Not having to come to the well every time. Whether I'm a prophet, all these things that are your issues is not the issue. Believe me, time is coming. It's like she kept trying to, and Jesus just kept going straight for it. Believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father, not on this neither on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says something again. His second bullet. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now, let me go back to the introduction I did when we're talking about the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. When you see two religions that look the same, at best at the surface, how does... <clears throat> they're only similar on the surface, but, but when you go deep, they are very different. And Jesus cleared immediately. He was not sentimental. He was not here for your trying to associate, okay, Shebi, we are shall all Christians. We are shall all worshipping the same God. He wasn't there for that. He cleared it immediately. And he told her, oh, her. because he wasn't, uh, what do you call this? Something politically correct. Though. He said it, oh, her. you worship what you do not know. But guess what? Plus the Jews, plus the Samaritans, we are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. But he shall first clear that one and said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And you will see that these two statements are very related. Because the woman wanted to take it back to where is the true, who are the real ones, who is correct, who is this? Who is that? And Jesus immediately cleared and said, first and foremost, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. So, you're wrong. Now, salvation is going to come from the Jews. It's of the Jews. That's what he meant. And then he, he clarifies to her what he's talking about because he's not telling her to go and start Judaism. Do you understand? He quickly clarifies what he means. And one of the things you will now learn, because of the different ways Jesus preaches and talks about himself, every single thing has significance. You see that when he was talking to Nicodemus, how he was talking about being born again, being born of the spirit. And then he's talking to her and he's telling her that, see, 
Those that worship God, it's not about worshiping him in Gezerim or worshiping him in Jerusalem. Those that worship God must worship God in spirit, for God is spirit. But guess what he says? You must always worship him. You must also worship him in truth. There is only one way to the Father. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Any religion that on the surface looks like Christianity, but deep inside is Margot, that there is nothing like that. Like you cannot surface level, use surface level to get to heaven. You are going nowhere. And the nature of truth is that it is single, like truth is singular. There are no many truths. Leave this world alone with their narratives. There are no many truths. At best, on surface, some things might look like it's similar, but there is only one truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he clarified it to her that if you are going to worship God, two things must happen. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. So anybody that says things like, I'm spiritual, I'm this thing, like we're discussing today on our group, and begins to say things that on the surface sound Christianese. You know there are things that sound Christianese. If it's not true, it's not true. And it's not God. Because my answer to that person is, you do not know, you worship what you do not know. At surface, it might look like they are worshiping the Lord. You saw that second Kings we read, that they looked very confused. They said they put small, small gods there. But in that same thing, they said, and they worship the Lord. And mind you, that Lord there was capital letter L-O-R-D. They worship what they do not know. Because, and that was why he now started to explain that, no, you cannot worship God and other gods. That means by virtue of introducing other idols into that situation, you worship what you do not know. It's a general counsel. Do you understand? You cannot put Jesus and put, the moment you begin to introduce other things, it is a general what? Cancel. It is one or nothing. It's one and zero. And so they might have thought that introducing God into the situation, I'm talking of second kings now, with the fact that all of them came with their small, small gods. Because get what? They were actually afraid. Lions were sent to kill them. The Bible said lions. And so they, were, they, so they repented. But they repented and put other small chigidi inside their house and said that they are worshipping God. And Jesus cleared and said, you worship what you do not know. You cannot worship God if it is not in truth. So you can shout Jesus from now until tomorrow, but if I find your definition of Jesus, it looks like a glorified there in Jemichael. You worship what you do not know. The nature of truth is that it's singular. And so Jesus clarified to her that that is the kind of worshippers the Father seek because God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit, full stop, and in truth. So this will help you when you evangelize. You are not Jesus, but you are using words of Jesus. Another good thing when you evangelize, don't point people to yourself. Oh. Point them to the person that can say, I cannot save anybody. I'm not your savior. I will point you to the person that can save you. And I'll tell you how she even did that. And so, and then yes, this is now the very first time. In John, Jesus reveals himself. We're going to keep seeing it as many things. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way they should. And like, this, this is where he says, the woman, now, the woman is now clear. And she's like, oh. You know before she said, she spoke about, you know, it's not a school teacher, you're a prophet. Now she said, I know that I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. Eh, eh, because I'm not a prophet in that sense. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I know who I am. I know what I'm telling you. And then she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. He said, I am he. 
So the the, the um, comment of um, theologians and everything will tell you that this is like the first place he said it, at least in John, expressly, I am he. Even, um, what's it called? The Pharisees were always asking him, tell us today who you are. Jesus, no, no, this one, he said it plainly to her. I am he. And then she went and did evangelism. This is one of the popular ways I've seen this scripture being spoke, um, spoken of, of how the woman did evangelism and all of that. But see how she even did her evangelism, which is something that you should learn from. I'm jumping. Uh, let me see. So when she was doing it, the moment she realized it, the water she came to fetch at 12 noon. For somebody to come and watch fetch water at 12 o'clock, they need that water. Plus everything. She left it and ran. And she went and tell what, what was her testimony. She started from what Jesus did for her. And that's a very powerful way to also testify. You testify of what God has done for you. And so as you go and preach, you can't come from a place where you're not sure of who you are, what God has done for you. You don't preach with other people's words. Who is Jesus to you? What has he done for you? But it doesn't end there because it always has to be in truth as well. So he says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and all of them made their way towards him. Right? And then when we jump to 39, we now see something. He says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves and we know that this man is really the savior of the world. So even if you want to use your whatever it is that you're talking about to evangelize and everything, it's only one truth that can save people, the gospel. It's, that's the only thing that can save people. At the end of the day, they had to believe. They heard from themselves. And then they believed that truly this man is the savior of the world. That is where their salvation has begun. Not after you've told them beautiful stories and they've cried or everything, but when they have heard for themselves and they really believe in their hearts that he's the savior of the world, then their work starts. Quick comment on, again, this, which is Jesus' admonition to us this evening on evangelism, where the disciples, they came, and then the first thing is like, ah, <laughs> Bruce Jay, no good chop. Because they went to go and look for food. And Jesus was like, I've eaten. And they too clueless. Did somebody cook food for him? <laughs> but let me not talk like that. Because if, if he's mute, that's the same way I would have been clueless as well. I'd be, you know, but. And then he begins to explain to them. And see something very um, interesting in what Jesus tells them. And it's also, uh, it's also my word for you this evening as I wrap up. Have I said as I wrap up before? Okay, sorry. Please wrap up, wrap up. <laughs> right? Um, so verse 34, he says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Just the same way the water, and we learned that on Sunday. Ah, Jesus is the cup that won't run dry. Nothing else in this world can satisfy. That's what Jesus was trying to tell that woman that she did not get. And so Jesus says, My, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to fin and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? And he was talking like it was a saying then. Oh, it's four months, four months until the harvest. I don't know what context or whatever it is, but it was a saying then, Sha. It's four months till the harvest. Just telling that I tell you, open your eyes and look. And I'm telling you people today, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, 
the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. He's talking of what he has done with the, the woman, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. He's the one who's reaped and all of that. All of you are going to be happy as they reap. And does the same, one sows and one, another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And I dare say that he's talking about everything that has happened before then. And you have reaped the benefits of labor. And this is my admonition to you. Others have done the hard work. We're talking of from the days of the apostles. They've all done the hard work. Like, imagine the fact that we even have scriptures, that we have canon. Do you know that that is the strong hand of God? Like, what more do you need? If the apostles had what you had in today's day and time, like they had a canon together as a Bible. They had the church the way it was. They had all the prophets. They had people who have gone ahead of them, who've explained it. They've had the church fathers. They've had all of that. What do you think they will do when it comes to evangelism? And this admonition is to you and it's to me. So don't try and beat around the bush. Don't you see? Just go and be collecting expo from the word of God. One, two. Remember that other people have done the hard work. They've done the work. Like, we don't have an excuse. I don't know what, to, I don't know what you will say. Let me not say we, because me, I'm, I, I'm ready to give account. Like, I don't know what we'll say when we get to heaven. That was our excuse. Do you think the church has ever had the kind of resources it has today? And I'm not, if you think I'm talking of money, then I hand you over to Brasham for righteous judgments. I'm talking of, like, you know the early Christians didn't have the Bible the way we have it, right? They didn't have all the work that has gone ahead. They did not have the internet. All the things I used to prepare today was free resources I got online. They didn't have... What will I excuse me? The others have done the hard work from the time... You see, you were not born in the days of Prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. Because small preach that you preach and they was pushed back, you are crying. I'm also talking to myself. Others have done the hard work. And this, that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. We are reaping the benefits of their labor. We don't have an excuse. Praise God. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.